0: So, welcome to the Restructuring, Consolidation, and M&A panel. Uh, We're very lucky to have a uh, distinguished, uh, I exclude myself, but a distinguished panel of experienced experts uh, on uh, the shipping sector, in the shipping sector, and uh, who will address a few uh, points and questions on a very wide-ranging topic, as I'm sure everybody can see. Uh, just real quick to uh, introduce, we have Mr. Uh, Floris uh, Lippens, who is Managing Director and Head of uh, Corporate Finance and Equity Capital Markets at ABN AMRO. Um, we have Kevin O'Hara, Managing Director at AMA Capital Partners, Mark Friedman, Senior Managing Director at Evercore, and Chris Wires, Managing Director and Head of Maritime Investment Banking at Steeple. So I appreciate the panelists joining us uh, for this panel today. Um, we'll, we'll probably end up uh, going in a couple of different directions since this is a pretty wide-ranging topic, um, and I think some of the panels that we've had beforehand set the stage a little bit for where the money may be coming from in order to deal with what are, uh, uh, ch- I think, always a changing environment and shipping in uh, in terms of restructuring, consolidation, and M&A opportunities. So um, to tee it up, first, over the past several years, as I think everybody knows in the sector, that, that different sectors in shipping, different segments of the market, have suffered severe downturns. Um, and a number of companies have needed to restructure, uh, in, both in and out of court. Uh, we've seen several of the traditional shipping banks exit shipping, Uh, And that's a topic that's been discussed over the past year and even here today. And the capital markets have become very selective in accommodating issuers. So with that backdrop, I'm going to ask each of the panelists to address what prospects they see for consolidation in some of these different sectors and compare and contrast dry tankers, containers, and uh, offshore drilling, the most recent sector, to suffer quite a bit. Flores, you want to kick it off?
1: Yeah, let me just say, in, in general, um, consolidation makes a lot of sense. There's um, all the economic reasoning is there, and you would expect that a lot of consolidation—it's it, already happening—but you would have expected much more. And um, without going into detail on each sector, what, what we have seen in certain deals, it's, and actually what I heard in the previous panel as well, is is that um, yes, it makes sense to merge, but it, Many times you have the, the owners and the and, and management who are just not ready to merge. It's um, uh, the egos. I, actually, I, I saw that in an Africa presentation as well uh, a half year ago. That's still a big thing in, in, in MA. and a uh, And many times I think like why it makes all the sense of the world if you guys go together or, or, or if you divest, But the egos are still an important thing.
0: You mean the, uh, the uh, bankers <laughs> egos? <laughs>
1: The banker's egos, absolutely.
0: Ah, I didn't know they had egos, okay. (laughs) We're talking about the owner's egos. Yeah,
1: and the owner's, yes. So, um, uh, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. It's just, um, it it should happen much more than what's going
2: on. Kevin. Yeah, I mean, it's a good place to start, right? There's Shipping and offshore is pretty unique in that sense. It's a very call for industry. You have plenty of owners who are very proud of what they've built. Um, But when you look at the offshore sector, you're actually starting to see a little bit. Um, you know, see the, the Norwegian companies coming together, and there's some big names in there, certainly, uh, where you might have had that as an obstacle in the past. So it's, it's, not, it's not going away, but it's certainly changing a bit. Um, one of the other things I think of in terms of a major obstacle for offshore restructuring is the idle equipment. You know, in, in shipping, you typically see in a downturn, you could still run your vessels. You might be losing some money on it. But here you have cold stacked vessels. And that cost of taking those idle vessels on and funding them until, God willing, there's a market upturn at some point, is probably one of the largest obstacles we're facing right now.
3: Uh, Mark? Thanks, Bill. I guess I've always observed um, the tremendous fragmentation in the industry and really little barriers to entry and really little reason why you can't fit assets together, and this really goes across different sectors. So, you know, one of my lines I've used are, you know, fleets fit together a lot better than management teams. Um, And so, you know, the ego point that you raised, I think, is a very valid one. Um, And so to see uh, consolidation come together, it really does need to be largely shareholder-driven. And there's certainly a lot of companies where, whether it's private equity ownership or just illiquid stocks, there's a real justification for consolidation, I'd say. You know, the number one reason for consolidation is really driven from an equity capital market perspective. Of course, there's some operating synergies and the like, you know, but when you cut right through it, you have this series of micro-cap companies that really on their own have very limited uh, investor interest. I thought uh, Kevin from Team Tankers spoke well about it earlier and he was bold enough at the end to say, we should put the four public or semi-public companies together. And he sort of touted together they would have a billion-dollar market cap. Well, even for most investors, a billion dollars is a very small company. So the big picture is really a capital market synergy, uh, along with putting together something that has, you know, sizable scale uh, and something that can really captivate investor interest.
4: Chris? So I guess I'm up now. So I, I would agree, you know, pretty much completely with what Mark has to say. I think, you know, we've seen a lot of M&A activity this year relative to past years. Um, most of that M&A activity, you know, appears to have been, you know, liquidity-driven, essentially shareholders looking to get more liquid in their um, in their ownership positions. Um, and you know liquidity is you know key amongst all of the um, all of the public companies, and you've got this whole big group of private companies, most of which are sponsor-owned. And I really put the sponsor-owned ones in their own group because all these sponsors, you know, that invested invested a number of years ago, and they all thought they'd be liquid by now, and they're still not. Um, and they look to mergers with you know public companies as you know maybe you know one of the few paths to liquidities today because they can't go public on their own and there aren't really cash buyers, um, and you know so it, it feels like there you should continue to be a lot of activity. Um, but as Mark and the other panelists have said, you know there's a lot of you know issues around these mergers like relative values of companies. It's very hard to get to, you know, even shareholder groups to agree with, and then, you know, who does, who, who runs these companies once these mergers are complete is, you know, really hard as well. So I think it needs to be shareholder-driven, um, but you know, shareholders, you know, in, in a lot of cases, you know, really struggle to come up with um, with appropriate values for their companies and the companies they're merging with, which makes this challenging. But you know, I guess the last point I'll make is most of the public companies today. Trade around net asset value, um, which I think is kind of where they should trade to be the most attractive M&A targets. If they trade below net asset value, nobody wants to take their shares. If they trade above net asset value, they never want to pay. They never want to pay asset value in shares. So um, it makes it more difficult. But you know, given everybody's at NAV today, you know, in theory, you know, the stars are aligned where we could see M&A activity really pick up.
0: So let's let's pick up on a, uh, something that um, I think is interesting about private equity. Private equity is, you know, something that uh, entered the lexicon in shipping what five, six, seven years ago, uh, as people were emerging from the crisis, first getting involved with some distress investments, and and then uh, more getting involved with um, other investments for different reasons. You would think that uh, the private equity players would be looking to foster more consolidation, whether through um, access to capital markets where others may not have it, or or bank debt, whether it's from the traditional banks who are pulling out, reportedly, or others. Um, are we going to see more, or why aren't we seeing more uh, of the, the private equity folks fostering more consolidation? Chris, we'll start with you, and we'll come back down the, the horn this way.
4: Sure. So. I, in, in my view, the private equity folks that are in shipping today typically have control. The companies they're invested in, they run them, you know, they, they manage the board, um, you know, they can effectively kind of tell management teams what to do. Um, and and while, while I think all of them you know, would like to exit their investments, they, they don't want to give up control unless they think the, you know, the vehicle that they merge into is better. You know, than what they've got today. And I think in a lot of cases, it's hard to argue that these vehicles are better. Because you know if, if you've merged two private shipping com- companies together, is a, is, a, is a bigger private shipping company better? You know, it may be marginally better, but not better enough for these private equity funds to give up control. And then you talk about merging into public companies you know, there's only a handful of public companies that have the right corporate governance and liquidity, you know, in their shares that would make it an interesting share for private equity firms to own. So, you know, I think those alternatives are on the table, but, you know, there aren't many merger candidates. Um, but, you know, I think as a general rule of thumb, they keep looking at, you know, is, it, is there something I can do that's better than just owning these companies myself? And so far, the market hasn't really given them any better, you know propositions and just continuing to own it themselves.
3: Well, <laughs> you would think logically that PE guys could readily transact with other PE guys. That would be logical. But somehow you know, they, in some cases I think they get enamored with their own control. Um, and so suddenly if the trade, if the trade was to sell your private company to a highly liquid public company, maybe like Navigate in Scorpio. There's a there's certainly a logic there and that they can understand because if they don't control it They can quickly sell it and to them that makes sense doing a private equity Sort of merger with other sets of private equity guys um, Somehow sometimes they like to feel they feel more comfortable. I'm not being judgmental but they feel more comfortable sort of controlling their own destiny even if ultimately their own smaller entity has less liquidity And, you know, maybe they're also having some form of, you know, Stockholm syndrome, (laughs) uh, where, you know, (laughs) hopefully I'm not insulting anyone from Stockholm, but... uh (laughs) It's a nice place. (laughs) But look, they become very close with uh, their management teams and suddenly, you know, they become very uh, defensive and supportive, which in some ways is an enabler or an inhibitor, I should say, to consolidation.
2: There, there seemed, we, we do seem to have some, some history now. Uh, there's case studies out there. You know, when we, when we first hit this downturn, which seems like quite a while ago, um, which it probably is, it was, there weren't a lot of case studies. Private equities was just getting interested in the space in a real way. Um, but now companies have been bought out and gone through bankruptcy, had their debt purchased by private equity, come out with ownership, they've converted their debt to equity to do so. And so you can see different companies and how they react. And I think what you'll see as a, as, a, as a pattern that's evolving is something that Mark is alluding to here. Some of these companies might have five owners. And you know these are, not, these are not quiet people. These are, these are people that are, are investing for a reason. They have high personal incentives to do well with their investments. So they're not going to sit back and let somebody else run their investment. So Hence the ego point. <laughs> I didn't say ego. Ah. <laughs> yes, yes, in, exactly. In part. Uh, and, and then you'll see a few companies that have come out with majority ownership uh, by one private equity firm. And I think they are able to take a little bit of more of a firm direction instead of having kind of going back and forth with their partners.
1: Yeah, I, I like the Stockholm syndrome quote <laughs> a lot um, because if you look through the cycles, private equity has made l- less than 10% return which is horrible and you wonder why they're still around and, and just recently we were in the market with uh, a portfolio of assets and I was just, uh, I was really surprised still how much uh, demand there is and how many bids we received for these assets from private equity. And yes, it changed a little bit. I mean, it's not only the old, good, good old standard private private equity. There's also a lot like the alternative financing uh, we had in the previous panel, but still with less than 10%, 10% uh, return on equity historically, I'm just mind blowing how much appetite there still is. So what
0: would, what would be the the pros and cons for different market players uh, in consolidating, um, if there are any cons. I mean, part of it is that uh, they, they need access to liquidity, and then they want to be able to get out uh, at a reasonable return. So do you see certain segments of the market uh, where there's more opportunity than, than others? Um, and you know, is there, is there any compelling reason for or against for some of these segments?
1: Flores. Um, now I, again, I see, an, I see a lot of reasoning, um, and it's a little bit across the sectors. And of course, uh, it, it, it's what we saw in two panels ago as well. Is that you know so many of the banks are withdrawing, so the debt financing is, is really drying up. Uh, Nordea, DNB, David DVB—they're uh, all sort of hit their ceiling or pulling out. And, uh, you know, actually, it's Ammo is one of the few banks that's still expanding its its exposure in the industry, um, which which uh, creates, you know, the, 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 the good companies still get financing and, and, and the bad companies have a really hard time to get the financing, which uh, creates a, a big difference. And it's just a matter of time that these parties consolidate and uh, size matters. So uh, there's a lot of sense to consolidate. Uh, to get access to these limited sources of debt financing. And that's that's across the sectors.
0: Across the sectors, okay. Kevin?
2: I would think one of the cons out there is something you see on a continual basis, but every once in a while you tend to forget, is how easy it is for someone to go out and build up their own fleet. Um, As unfortunate as it may sound, the four of us could go out, if we had a sponsor, and build 20 tribalkers. and all of a sudden you have another competitor in the market. It's a good um, idea. Where you, where you have a, a sector, though, that's a little bit more complicated, um, whether it's tankers and I think moving on up to some of the offshore sectors with sophisticated vessels, you know, nobody in their right mind is going to go out and build a new dive support vessel and just run one um, by themselves. So I, I do see a little bit more of a, an opportunity in the offshore going forward, starting with the, the general concept of everything's darkest before the dawn. Um, and then emerging from there, it may be a couple of years, but they, that's where I see the opportunity.
3: I guess just to reinforce, I think in general, um, I think you can be pretty agnostic in terms of uh, consolidation. It sort of, to some degree, you know, all of the sectors, whether it's crude tankers, product, uh, chem tankers, um, dry bulk, I mean, they're all sort of big areas, they're all, pretty fragmented, so consolidation really could make sense uh, in every sector. And again, to sort of circle back to the key advantage, I mean, it's all about capital when you cut through it. Look, there's some level of g synergies, there's some level of uh, you know, maybe enhanced management that you might get in a consolidation, but um, until we somehow this industry goes asset light, which I don't think we'll see, it's all about capital and that's really the point of putting these businesses together and hopefully over time if you do have a really well capitalized company with share liquidity and good management and responsible boards god that's a lot to ask you might actually see these companies trade better and have a valuation premium which in and of itself would be a factor that enables consolidation and i think chris's point is fair most of these companies sort of trade You know within a band because quite frankly most of them aren't sort of differentiated in terms of uh their size or their capital uh access um i do think you know just to sort of maybe transition a little bit to the restructuring maybe where it gets more interesting is we are seeing some restructurings where they aren't just purely kick the can restructurings and there's a lot of equitization and we saw that a little bit in dry bulk we saw it in the recent ocean rig restructuring that Bill and I worked on, where now, coming out of restructuring, at least these companies have really strong balance sheets. And so they can now be the natural consolidators. In, and as Kevin mentioned, you could see that in you know, rigs and offshore. So I think that's going to be something that's going to be interesting to, to
4: follow. I guess I I guess I would say you know from it's kind of restating some of the obvious, but I think the big cons around merger activity today is you know figuring out kind of the correct you know corporate governance post merger, and the fact that there's so few companies in the shipping space out there today that have kind of proper corporate governance today for you know somebody to merge in and take shares. And really, the only—and it brings me to the second point, which is you know the only way to complete mergers today is through issuance of shares of, of of equity. There's you know nobody really has cash today to make cash acquisitions. So the other big constraint is financing. With the banks pulling back, it makes it much harder to finance these acquisitions. The you know the capital markets, while they've filled in to some degree, they're. They definitely have not stepped up in to replace the banks, and the cost of capital there is much, much higher than, than the cost of um, cost of bank capital. And then, um, then the real pros of of kind of merger activity, and in, in, in my view, is um, is you know, the longer these private equity funds and hedge funds you know sit on investments they made a few years ago, the stronger their desire is to get liquid, um, and merging you know particularly into a public company is really the one of the only avenues to get public today. So I, I think the, you know, the, the need for liquidity and the need to exit investments is going to start to drive um, you know, more decisions to, um, to merge companies. And then, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I think valuations, you know, particularly in the public company space, are pretty good to, um, to try to consummate some of these mergers today. And then I'd agree with Mark on, on restructurings, uh, particularly in offshore because that's a sector that's been restructuring. You've got a lot of companies that are coming out with very little debt. They're also coming out with you know very kind of non-traditional shareholders, essentially hedge funds that bought their debt now own their equity. And a lot of these guys you know aren't long-term players either. So I, I think within the offshore space, you're likely to see um, Merger activity as companies come out of restructuring, whether it be two of the drillers or, or two of the you know the U.S. Gulf um, OSV operators coming together, um, and the other driver for that is these companies all effectively, if they don't have charters in place, have negative cash flow, so they're actually burning cash, and the desire to you know actually eliminate corporate costs and on the GNA line are you know pretty pretty critical in that state if you want to maintain liquidity to get to a better market
0: yeah I think the 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 issue of exit and liquidity is definitely a key component um, let, let's shift to the restructuring just for a little bit since uh, mark raised it is we've had you know several years uh, certainly you know dry bulk and now you um, we're in the throes of the, uh, the offshore, and there's going to be some other sectors probably coming down the pike. What lessons have we learned so far, and um, what differences are there, for example, between uh, the restructurings that are more comprehensive equitizations, and the, there are still some that appear to be uh, kick the can down the road? Um, you know, what, are we, what kind of lessons can we derive from that?
4: Chris. I mean I, I think, you know, probably a number of lessons. One one lesson which, which you know, I wish really wasn't a lesson, but you know, companies in, in in broadly defined maritime space, you know, go bankrupt and they go bankrupt regularly. A lot of companies go bankrupt multiple times. Um, when things get bad, you know, they get really bad. You know, companies with too much leverage go bankrupt very quickly. Companies with even moderate amounts of leverage tend to go bankrupt. You know, later, if the market doesn't re- recover quickly enough. Um, so, I, I think, you know, one of the big lessons for me is, you know, because I, I started doing restructuring in probably, you know, 2010, 11, 12, um, and there'd never been any restructuring in my career before that. And um, I thought it would be done you know, come 2012. Um, and it was temporarily done for like two years, but then all of a sudden, all these dry bulk companies had to restructure again. And then all of a sudden oil price collapsed and all the oil field service companies had to restructure. And, you know, it'll come back around, you know, to tankers and dry bulk again, you know, at, at some point, you know, not too soon. So it's, it's highly cyclical and, you know, for restructuring bankers, there's there's unfortunately a lot of opportunity in this space.
0: That's why here in the U.S. we call it Chapter 22. <laughs> <Right>.
3: <laughs> yeah. as, as someone who's done a lot of restructuring, uh, and it's a big part of our practice, I shouldn't be giving out this advice, but there's a special group. Um, I mean. Th- The truth is, you can't have all this operating leverage that a tanker or dry bulk company has and a massive amount of financial leverage and then layer on a massive dividend. I mean, that's just a recipe for disaster. You don't need to be a genius to figure that one out. But, you know, I think the companies in the sector have always been challenged with valuation. And so when valuation is difficult, you raise a lot of debt because you don't want to do dilutive equity, and to get a higher share price, you seem to feel you'll get it with a higher dividend. And so ultimately, that leads to bad consequences, and you know, now we have a good history of that. So that's sort of, I think, the biggest lesson to be learned. The other lesson is your restructuring is going to look like what, who your debt constituents are. And so, having done uh, kick-the-can restructurings with banks that only wanted to do that, and quite honestly, a lot of the management management and shareholders wanted that as well because it kept the hope alive of no dilution. So, you know, we've seen that flavor and there's a reason for it. And then, you know, you tend to see better long-term outcomes where you do have more of the hedge fund guys in there who are willing to equitize and the company will come out healthy and ready to grow, but you know, everyone should recognize that comes usually at the cost of almost complete dilution and wiping out of uh, existing shareholders.
2: Kevin. In, in terms of the talk about lessons learned and, you know, AMA has been doing restructurings, you know, Wharton Arntzen um, moved over and kind of recreated AMA into a restructuring shop at the time in the late 90s. But I don't think it was really seen to be a restructuring shop. But the reality is it's been 20 years, and I think all but four or five of those have been pretty solid restructuring years, um, just in terms of being busy with restructurings. The The constant theme that we see over time is the need for for actual fixes for an operational solution. Um, I would say it's harder these days, especially in the offshore side, But it's difficult to go in and just change the debt structure without looking at the operational side of the business. And when we try to bridge the capital markets with the operational side, that's part of what we're trying to do. And I think that's the biggest challenge these days, especially in the offshore market, when you have no home for a lot of these assets.
1: All right, Boris. I've never done restructuring and um, but I really, I think uh, we should look into this because that might be an interesting business uh, case for us in ad- on the advisory side. And um, so that's that's the main lesson for me. <laughs> um, You're a lucky man. Yeah. No, but it makes sense because again, all the banks that I just mentioned, who are you know withdrawing, they become much tougher than they were before. Certain banks just kept on kicking down the, the uh, k- kicking the can down the, down the street. Uh, but who who now start to be more tougher and, and demanding. And so more restructuring will happen. So it will be a, um, it was a bit passive, and I, I think it will be more active. And, and maybe I should start doing some restructuring advice well, So
0: let me ask you, as uh, well, I know you're on the uh, capital market side, but for for a bank, kicking the can down the road, have there been lessons? So the lessons is it was a good thing, is it a bad thing, or does it depend... Purely on the particular
1: credit. You know um, this, that that is really case by case. That's really case by case. Because um, sometimes you just it time heals stuff. Sometimes markets market pick picks up, and and you can come to solutions uh, that didn't seem to be possible. So uh, sometimes and and well, it's interesting. It's again it are people people are hoping you know there's it's difficult to take the pain and people are hoping for you know stuff to pick up pick up and to to which allow a solutions but it's it, just like you just heard people are focused on on. you know we want this this and this and that doesn't always work but um uh, I would, I would, I would love to have banks to be more uh, decisive, more take more action, and be less passive. That, that's my personal view.
0: Okay, fair enough. Uh, one more topic before we uh, wrap up, real quick. Um, just, what would uh, the panel say would be the most important external factors that might affect uh, the short-term, medium-term prospects for consolidation, M&A? Uh,
1: Flores. Um, the equity capital markets that would be a major driver. Sorry. The, the equity capital equity markets. Equity capital markets. Yeah, that's that's the the the. I think that's the main thing in m M&A. and Markets overall, yeah. just just the yeah. general.
0: Okay, fair enough.
2: I would say Kevin. the fin- I would say the financing support. You, you you need to have the banks, the alternative capital providers, ready to to look at a case where you're consolidating, and get behind it. Because without the debt side, you're, it's not going to happen.
3: I would also say the equity markets and to the degree that public companies in the space start trading at premiums to NAV, that will be a driver of consolidation.
4: Yeah, I I agree as well. I think it's the equity markets and having real value and liquidity there and the banks. Um, If the banks were to pull back considerably um, more than they already have. Or pressure clients to do things that they haven't been pressuring them to do in the past. Um, that would be, you know, a big game changer.
0: Whether they respond or not is another question. <laughs> right. All right. I think we're just about out of time. Uh, thanks uh, to the audience. Appreciate your attention. And thanks very much to our panel. Appreciate Thank it. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>